It's Wednesday, January 24th, 2024. Huh? From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Luena, Angola. In 2012, a Chinese state company finished building the train station in this central Angolan town and installed an illuminated computer-controlled board to show departure times and ticket prices, the Wall Street Journal reports. Then the contractors decamped, great word, for China, and according to Angolan railway employees, neglected to tell anyone the computer password. For more than a decade, the departure board has stubbornly displayed 2012 train times and 2012 ticket prices. Well, the savings are great, but the fact that it's entirely inaccurate, just not the best. So the United States, this is a story of American opportunism to help the lives of people throughout the world. It's also a story of the Chinese not always doing everything more efficiently and better than us. So the Americans come in and they say, you know what? We'll rebuild your railway a little bit better than the Chinese did. I mean, we're not a dictatorship. We can't make the trains run on time, but we could get the decade right. The report in the journal by Michael Phillips, and what a great report, goes on to say that Angola's government spends more than 60% of its revenue paying off debts, according to the IMF, and they're greatly indebted to the Chinese. There are other details in this wonderful story, and a wonderful story is a compelling thing to read in this day and age that just stood out, like this part. Shoddy Chinese work and Angolan maintenance along the 800-mile railroad connecting Angola's Atlantic port of Lobito to mineral-rich Congo have left stations run down, that's bad, safety systems on the blink, potentially dangerous, computer servers dark, as chronicled, phone lines disconnected, none of this is good, and trains prone to tipping off the rails according to, whoa, 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 whoa. That last one seems to be much more serious than all the other ones combined. So it's a chance. It's a chance for Americans to go in to say the Chinese done you wrong, Angola. We are choo-choo chugging along to the future. The only critique I have of this is that Phillips himself tweeted out the story in 2012. A Chinese firm built a new Angolan train station with a computerized departure board. The Chinese left without sharing the access password, and the board still shows 2012 train times. Last sentence of the tweet. Why China is losing ground to the U.S. in one major African country. I I don't think you have to explain it. I'm not necessarily clicking after you laid that out there. That is indeed why China is losing ground to the U.S. in one major, I mean, it's, it's an African country. I don't want to denigrate Angola. They're mineral rich or at least mineral rich adjacent and certainly excellent newspaper coverage rich. The fodder thereof. What a natural resource. On the show today, we will get into newspapers and one that maybe hasn't done it as sparklingly as the Wall Street Journal. But first, did you know Nikki Haley lost, I'm going to say, pretty badly last night. Double-digit loss. Some will tell you, oh, no, 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 no. Trump's basically an incumbent. And this was a jet propulsion to the future. Nikki Haley herself argued this. I argue otherwise. And here to join me in this argument, or at least this analysis, someone who wrote an excellent profile of Nikki Haley in Politico a few years ago. He is now a staff writer for The New Yorker. Tim Alberta joins me next.
Tim Albert has been on before, and he's out with a new book, a new analysis, reacting to the news of the day. The book is just excellent. It's called The Kingdom, The Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. And we just saw perhaps a sign of that extremism, certainly the irritant to Tim and many evangelicals, uh, Donald Trump romping, I'm going to say romping, relatively romping in New Hampshire. Let's talk about the latest election results. Welcome back to The Gist, Tim. Hey, Mike. Good to see you, man. How are you? I'm well. So let's talk about Nikki Haley at the risk of by the time someone hears this, maybe she'll have dropped out of the race. I don't think she did that well. She lost by 10, but I'm being told, no, 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 no. Considering how strong Trump was and that he's a quasi incumbent, it was decent enough to fight another day. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, look, I I think it's a... uh I'd say it's a respectable showing, but it's it's you know politics is sort of a zero sum bottom line business. You either win or you lose, and you know New Hampshire is famous for drawing out a lot of independents who or undeclareds as they call them up there uh, who can cross over and and vote even though they're not affiliated with one party or the other. And the fact of the matter is, when you look at how the Republican primary structure works. That's just not the case in a lot of upcoming states. So they're going to go to her native South Carolina. And uh, and my guess is that she probably, despite being popular there and, and despite having uh, a lot of uh, allies there, she's probably not going to beat Trump there. And then she goes even to tougher terrain after that. So I just, you know, ultimately, you got to stack some wins somewhere. And coming up 10 points short might be a moral victory, but it's certainly not a win. I think you understand Nikki Haley, or at least you convinced me that you did from your uh, Politico write-up of her a couple years ago. In fact, I found myself saying, oh, no, that's not what Nikki Haley's like. And then I would come back to, how do I know what Nikki Haley's like? Oh, yeah, it's because Tim Alberta wrote that Politico piece. And she is both smart and calculating and has had to shapeshift, although maybe someone else would say code switch right? So we saw that come up in her calculation about not taking on Trump head on, still allowing enough of a permission structure to allow an independent who doesn't hate Trump to see the wisdom of voting for her. And I was thinking too, when she talked at the 2020 convention, and she didn't even refer to her stance that most uh, people not to the far right would have um, complimented her on, which is taking down the Confederate flag. She wouldn't even call it the Confederate flag, right? She called it that divisive symbol, a divisive symbol. So my question is, is she going to call out Trump head on or is she still in the cagey, I'll obliquely refer to him or think of him as that divisive symbol? Well, (laughs) you know, Mike, it's interesting because we see this pattern of candidates who in their last gasps, like they're beginning to... uh, they're beginning to draw closer to the light and their campaign is nearing its end. And suddenly they find the courage to say what they really think about Donald Trump, uh, some more so than others. But, you know, I'm thinking of Ron DeSantis just in the last week. I'm thinking certainly of Ted Cruz in 2016. Uh, I'm thinking of Rick Perry and uh, and uh, Rand Paul and some others who, you know, who played it really safe and then ultimately near the end kind of let it rip and yeah. uh, and and were willing to uh you know, tell us what what they really thought about the guy. My my hunch is that maybe Nikki Haley reaches a similar place where she's exasperated, she's exhausted, she's worn down, and frankly, she's just sick of 
all of these Trump acolytes uh, telling her and kind of harassing her into getting out of the race. And she finally does just let her let her guard down a little bit and say what she thinks. Um, but, I, you know, the 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 tragedy in that is that, you know, if you're Nikki Haley, maybe you would never have won this primary by running a campaign that was built on authenticity and honesty yeah. and, and candor yeah. and and really saying what you know to be true about Donald Trump, because make no mistake, Mike, Nikki Haley has a very firm set of convictions about who Donald Trump is as a human being, who he is as a, as a, as an elected official, who he is as a president of the United States. And she has made the decision long ago to bottle up those convictions and to not share them with the world. The best she can do is say, oh, you know, chaos follows him for better or worse. Like, right, what does yeah, that even passive mean? voice, right? I yeah, haven't passive, been, I haven't been, I haven't been following the trials where he's been adjudicated to be a rapist. <laughs> right, exactly. You know follow I mean, I'm not saying read the transcripts, just the headline, Nikki. Yeah, just the headline would do. Uh, yeah. even, a, even, even, a, even a quick uh, Twitter summary could get you caught up. Yeah, I mean, but this is the thing, right? So maybe she wouldn't have won uh, by, by being that version of herself, but you've got to think that at least she would have been able to sleep at night and, and, and feel a little bit better after losing. I mean, what's, uh, it's just, it's remarkable to me how many of these folks are willing to, uh, suppress the truer versions of themselves uh, and and lose in the process rather than just lose by being true to themselves. And in Nikki Haley's case, there's no great secret about what she really thinks about Donald Trump, and yet she's had to carry on this sort of year and a half long charade. It's just sort of sad to watch. Yeah. So here are some counterpoints to that. One is, well, obviously that's what we, or maybe just I'll speak for myself, me and Mika Brzezinski would have liked for her to do, take him head on. But that is just because it would uh, appeal to the uh, the instincts, the id of uh, people who are never even going to vote for her in the general, that maybe wasn't the best strategy too. We do have a case study, unlike last time, about the candidate who has, who was a governor who had affiliation with the Trump administration, who broke with him, and then who just went head on against Trump, and that was Chris Christie, and he got immolated. And three, when you say sleep with herself, I think, I bet you think too that she could sleep with herself. She is someone who is probably congratulates herself on her, she would call it maybe being an adult. Others have called it her shrewdness, how she navigated, there's a there's a word, being inside the Trump administration, then a critic of the Trump administration. So she probably says this is, you know, this is the uh, business that we've chosen. Yeah, maybe. Although, you know, listen, on that last point, uh, and I won't dwell on it, Mike, but she, you know, Nikki Haley wants to be president badly. Uh, mm -hmm. th th that is that was like a clear, a, a, just a vivid impression that I took away from from the considerable amount of time that I spent with her. Like, it wasn't just in passing. It wasn't something that intrigued her. Like, she she desperately wants to be president, I believe. And so I'm not sure that she's going to be able to just easily recover from this. I will say another thing, though, to your earlier oh, oh, point. Oh, so the sleeping with the self. Okay, now I understand. I thought you were saying because she had to be true to her own morality, but you're saying she would beat herself up for not having taken the best shot, for being overly cautious. 
You're right. This I, I think the idea being that like it's easier to feel some semblance of peace afterwards, knowing that you lost by actually running a campaign that was more true to yourself and to your convictions and your beliefs, rather than having this sort of artifice that that was. Yeah. You know, that's again, that's you know, I'm not I'm not her psychologist. It just strikes me as odd. The, the other thing I would say to your earlier point: look, it's totally legitimate, and and we obviously have a a pretty significant sample size now to show what happens to people when they step out and and go after Trump in that way. However, I I, I also think, Mike, and I struggle with this. I mean, it's something I've written a a lot about and and spent a lot of time in conversation with Republican officials over the years about. This becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because we have this collective action problem on the Republican side of the aisle where whether it's in 2016 during the primary season when nobody really wanted to go after him because they didn't want to alienate his small but growing group of supporters, or whether it's in the two months between November 3rd and January 6th, 2021, where you know, November 3rd being Election Day 2020, obviously, and January 6th, 2021, where all these Republican members of Congress know that he's completely full of it and that he's just making all this stuff up. But, hey, he's going to be gone in a couple of months. What's the downside in humoring him? I don't want to antagonize all his constituents in my backyard. This is this sort the same thing sort of keeps replaying itself where, yes, it's true that the people who you know stick their head up uh, above ground and and shout at him and criticize him tend to get shot pretty quick yeah. but in the absence of more people doing that and more people doing it in a compelling persuasive insistent way i don't know how this fever ever breaks i'm not sure whatever sort of punctures the the the, the aura of trumpism and i think nikki haley actually could have could have been Better position, not uniquely positioned, but better positioned than a Chris Christie, having served in the administration alongside of him to share the very raw recollection she had and to say, look, this is not someone who I think is suited to be president of the United States moving forward. She could have made that case in a way that I don't think others could have. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we'll never know. I also think, I mean, I think it's more likely that the Republican electorate is just genuinely enamored uh, with Trump and would vote for him no matter what. So, you know, we can't replay the hypothetical. And there are times where probably elected officials, Republicans told themselves, oh, we took action. But for instance, uh, McCarthy in the days after January 6th, and then he got a read on the electorate. And as a politician, he says, oh my God, I'm totally out of step with the party. I would say the times to have done it, there was one real time, which is a vote for conviction on the second impeachment. That would have been the time. Yep. Yeah. Well, yep. Uh, and, and and boy, you better believe that. Talk about not sleeping at night. That's that's one that has Mitch McConnell tossing and turning every day because uh, I think uh, he know he recognizes. That right. In right. His, He's not sleeping <laughs> at night. That's why I asked to catch naps in the middle of press <laughs> conferences. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh, touche. Yeah, you took it there. But that's I mean, listen, man, that, that's one that if you could go back and if you took a uh, if you took a straw poll you know, an, an, an unofficial survey of the, you know, uh, however many it was, 35 or so Republican senators who did not vote to convict or the, I guess it was closer to 40. Uh, 
boy, how many of them would go back and, and take that one over? Yep, because they thought that it's not going to be our problem anymore and this guy's done. Yep. So one last question on what just happened yesterday and the couple days ahead. For all that we're talking about, you could we heard what Nikki Haley said and South Carolina's coming up, though, she, though you say she's popular. She's polling really badly there. And Tim Scott is also maybe more popular in state as a current politician and he endorsed Trump. Does that all get put aside and what it really will come down to is her people will get in touch with the big donors and they'll see if there's money out there for the next few weeks? Yeah, basically. And and, and there, there are some uh, – I, I have not done this reporting myself, Mike, but I've seen some reporting just in the last 24 hours to suggest that at least right now – and these things are very fluid as we know. They change day by day. But as of right now, like – less than 24 hours removed from the New Hampshire result, that there is still some money out there and that there are some donors, big donors, who want to see her press on. And, you know, here's the interesting thing about this this primary on both sides, uh, because people are going to, obviously it's not symmetrical, it's the, the different circumstances, but there's one thing that, you know, binds Trump and Biden together, obviously, which is deep, you know, like, you know, just sort of um, a, a, a persistent and uh, inescapable concern about their age and about their mental acuity and about their fitness, that whether it's Nikki Haley on the Republican side or Dean Phillips, the Minnesota congressman on the Democratic side, there, there's a sense, I think, among uh, among some of the supporters of these of those two candidates, that they should stay in for a while just in the event that something weird happens, just in the event that one of these guys falls down a flight of stairs. The, or The actuarial candidacies. The actuarial <laughs> candidacies, man. I mean, it's like, look, we, we joke about it, but it's it's actually a real thing that comes up repeatedly in my conversations with both some Democrats and some Republicans who wonder, listen, could we enter uncharted territory this summer if something were to happen to what, you know, if a Big Mac gets lodged in the artery or if there's a, a, a trip and fall down the flight, uh, down the down the steps right. of Air Force One, like what happens seriously? And, and if, in fact, one of these other candidates hangs around long enough to accrue some delegates, would they not be in the best position then to step forward? It's actually a legitimate conversation, I think. Yeah, the P, the fact that people are reaching for Dean Phillips to play that role with Kamala Harris actually literally as the vice president tells you something about, I think, her appeal within the party. Yeah. Tim Alberta is a reporter for The Atlantic, and his book is The Kingdom, The Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, Mike, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. The LA Times laid off 115 employees yesterday. Now, I'm not here to um, piss on anyone's grave, but if it falls on me to crap in the crematorium, well, then it falls on me to do so.
It gives me no pleasure. Journalism in general needs to be supported. And I support it more than the average American. In fact, I support it more than 10 average Americans. The average American does not subscribe to a daily newspaper. I subscribe to the LA Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg, the Philadelphia Inquirer, the Sacramento Bee, the San Francisco Chronicle, and onto periodicals, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and also about 12 substacks. A friend sneaked me her economy password the other day. I'm not even including that. I got to I gotta also tell you, yesterday I hit the paywall at the Boston Globe and thought, wow, it's only a dollar for 20 weeks. What I'm saying is, people, I have a problem. I need help. But you know who else has a problem? The LA Times does. It's not all about me. They don't have a problem with my subscription, although I am questioning it. It is all their other subscribers and non-subscribers. Mostly their problem is macro trends and how news aggregators, the huge tech companies, just rip off newspaper content, but also fundamental advertising efficiencies. Efficiency is good, except when it comes to decimating the news business because no one really needs want ads in a newspaper where 90% of the people, well, 99% of the people aren't even looking for your want ad. And how want ads used to work is they were the cash crop that funded City Hall coverage and everything else, everything that people didn't know they wanted to read and maybe, let's be honest, didn't want to read. But here's the one part no one wants to say today. The LA Times is not an excellent newspaper. It is a competent newspaper. It won a Pulitzer recently. It certainly has some good reporters. I'm not saying it doesn't. But of all the newspapers I subscribe to, the Philadelphia Inquirer is the worst. It's the least essential to me in my life. But the LA Times is second to last. And if you're saying, well, you're in New York, there in LA, of course it would be. No, the Sacramento Bee tells things much more straightforwardly. I like that as a better paper. And the San Francisco Chronicle has one or two really essential columnists who make the whole thing worthwhile. I'm kind of looking forward to unsubscribing, certainly to the Inquirer when my dollar for the price of entry is due, and maybe even to the LA Times. Most critiques of the LA Times are very nasty from people saying, learn to code, or right-wingers assailing the paper for being liberal. But LA is a liberal city. It's in a liberal state. It's not a problem that their editorial pages have a leftward bent, a bit of a problem that their news pages do. It would be a harder lift if at least the editorial didn't service their community. It's just that the LA Times is unsurprising. It's unsurprising that it's progressive, but it's also unsurprisingly everything else. There are no Katie Weavers at the LA Times to do a story on glitter. There are no Heather Knights or Emily Hoovins, who took over Knight's column at the San Francisco Chronicle, who can call bullshit on the insular talking points, yes, quite often the liberal talking points of city councilors and government officials. The Pulitzer that the LA Times won was for uncovering tape of Latino city councilors talking trash in racially offensive ways about black politicians. But you know what? I went elsewhere. I went to local public radio and Madeline Brand's show, Press Play, for the best coverage, the most honest coverage of the underlying dynamics there. I personally watched hours-long council meetings, which were just insane. They were just meltdowns. I brought them to you because that was interesting. The LA Times did not focus on the things that were most interesting. I think they adhered to a tone that was scared, was afraid of offending constituencies. They just didn't feel compelled to make you take notice about what was going on. I also think they were quite frightened of ever offering any sort of defense for the Latino city councilors. But 
you know, my understanding of it from other sources is that Latinos are grossly underrepresented in Los Angeles compared to their black counterparts. And that was an angle that the LA Times, I don't know, just seemed a little scared off of. The LA Times op-ed page used to feature Megan Daum, Virginia Heffernan, Jonah Goldberg, left, right, center there. Today, as we speak, I subscribe to Virginia's Substack. I listen to Megan's Special Place in Hell podcast, her unspeakable podcast. I listen to Jonah on two different podcasts he does, The Remnant and Glop. I never engage with the LA Times op-eds. I don't really hate read them. I kind of despair read them. They're boring. They're predictable. They kind of grind away at the horrors of the world or the worries of our moment. There's a bludgeoning way of writing and framing issues where all the spark is not just denuded, but treated as if we're wrong to want it, given the dire, dire stakes of everything in the world. L.A. happens to be a very quirky town. None of that comes across in the L.A. Times, not as much as it should. There seems to be no joy taken in the civic and the municipal or just the social experience there. The paper's a slog. Some of the writing is good, very good even. I like their Rust coverage. Steve Lopez is an exception to everything I'm saying. But, you know, part of quirkiness and being interesting is crime, and they are really afraid to offend anyone by talking about crime. L.A.'s a noir city. L.A. Confidential was real and got a lot of people paying attention. The L.A. Times runs away from that. They even had a huge discussion if they should use the word looting anywhere in coverage, lest it offend or castigate. I know there are so many talented reporters and editors being jettisoned. I feel very bad for them. I also know the average Los Angelino isn't going to be better informed tomorrow, but how much have they lost? What was the LA Times's case that it's an essential institution? Do LA news consumers feel that they just can't get by without the LA Times? That the LA Times will report on issues in a deeper or different or more compelling way than they could get in a lot of other places? If the LA Times were a person you met at a party, would that person pull you over with their sparkling wit? Would they maybe be a repository of fascinating information? I like that kind of person at a party. Or would you, and I think this would happen, the LA Times personified, you'd move away after a couple minutes after just hearing uh, stuff about, I don't know, the Caltrans pension shortfalls. Here, I'll quote Oliver Darcy, a CNN media columnist covering the LA Times staff cuts. The cuts have come at a horrendous time as anti-democratic candidates look to seize power in election contests from coast to coast. Newsrooms are shrinking and simply trying to stay afloat. Well, the LA Times, even when well-staffed or much better staffed than they are now, didn't do much to prevent the anti-democratic candidates from winning the votes of those outside their coverage area insofar as the LA Times has that kind of impact, creating a well-informed citizenry. Let's look at California itself. The Senate there is 32 to 8 Democrat. I guess Darcy would say that's the LA Times doing its job, but people in California aren't particularly happy. 55% said the state's going in the wrong direction. On the one hand, that's better than 71% wrong track nationally, but you know, nationally, those statistics are affected by the fact that, oh my God, I got to put up with these idiots from Alabama or these idiots from Rhode Island who are thwarting what my views of the direction of the country should be. 
Also, I looked at New York, right? We have the New York Times here. That's a dominant newspaper. If uh, anyone wants to be well-informed by the New York Times, pick one up at their local newsstand or online for a fairly affordable price. And and the well-resourced, well-funded, lots of people in the newsroom, New York Times is not creating an overall better situation in terms of the electorate. The same amount of people or same percent of people say New York's on a wrong track as say California's on a wrong track. I don't believe that a newspaper has that much impact. I do believe that a well-informed citizenry is important. But to get that, you got to make them want to read the paper. And you got to make them convinced that the paper is indeed a great source of information. But here's another way to look at that terrible time for cuts argument that Darcy was putting forth. I ask you, when is a good time for cuts? That alone, I could just leave that there, but let's get into it a little more. By the logic, right, it was that terrible time. We have anti-Democrats looking to win elections. So by that logic, presumably a good time when we could best afford newspaper cuts as a country would be when there is no threat of voters screwing it all up and ignorantly electing someone anti-Democratic. And by the logic of, well, how do we get to that point? It's a well-informed citizenry who reads their newspapers. Well, that wouldn't be a good time for cuts at all because the citizenry would be reading the newspaper. So we can afford cuts when newspapers are strong, which is when we wouldn't have cuts to newspapers. And when we can't afford cuts to newspapers is when they're weak because people don't want to read the newspaper. It's kind of silly. It's typical of the payons to the cuts that the LA Times and also Time Magazine to Washington Post to a lesser extent a couple weeks ago, the payons that they received. Mostly it's just in general, pro-newspaper, pro-knowing things, pro-journalism. I haven't seen too many LA Times pieces, reported pieces, columns of people who are being fired, being passed around, saying, this is what we're giving up. Democracy has not yet died in darkness, but the dusk is setting in. That's the general general tone of why we should bemoan the LA Times cuts. These crepuscular times lend themselves to hand-wringing. Crepuscular times, by the way, niche name for an afternoon daily. But the hand-wringers, if they want to make a great case for the survival of the newspaper, say, read this, read this guy, read this woman, and she just got fired. Haven't seen that one yet. Newspapers are a challenging business. They depend on the largesse of billionaires to subsidize them. Americans aren't better informed, but they have a lot more data, a lot more quote-unquote information, really easy to get. In fact, hard to ignore. This makes the average person in a position where it's very hard to argue them into the utility of a local daily newspaper, certainly not at a price that would support the salaries and benefits of hundreds of journalists. I have no surefire answer to any of this, but I can offer one piece of advice. Newspapers have to take their best shot. They have to be essential. They have to not be afraid to be useful and interesting to the reader, the actual reader, not each other. The potential subscriber who doesn't know how much they would love the product, but upon encountering the product, realizes, ooh, I can't live without that. And that's it for today's show. The Quaint Mallards produced the gist. Corey Ward, gist producer. Joel Patterson, gist senior producer. Michelle Pesca is in charge of special projects at Peach Fish, here at Peach Fish. Oomperoo, Jeepuru, Dooperoo. Thanks for listening.